Father, we are living in times of trouble. We are living in times of untruth. We're living in times of deception. And this is why we're here tonight to study your word. We, we are told in Ephesians 5 not to live as unwise men, but as wise. And that's why we're here to study your word. We need your wisdom as we walk through life. And we need your discernment as we walk through life. We need your perspective. We are inundated with false truth, fake truth, half truth, no truth. But your word is truth. And the sum of thy word is truth. So we are here tonight to hear from you. We thank you that your word sustains us in the good times and in the worst of times. And we have men here tonight that are in good chapters of their lives. And we thank you for those chapters, but we have others that are in the darkest chapters. Uh, maybe the darkest chapter they've ever been in. In either one of those, we need your wisdom and we need your discernment. We need your perspective. So tonight, we would ask, as we always do, for teachable hearts and for open hearts. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, and we ask that we would be quick to hear, not quick to excuse or quick to rationalize, but that we, we would be quick to hear what your word says. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply that word to each guy's situation. We, we, we are faced with all kinds of challenges and decisions that affect us short-term and long-term. And we need to hear from you. You promised to give us your wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, James says, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. We thank you for that promise. And we hold it up to you tonight. Instruct us in the way that we should go for the rest of this day. And as we get up tomorrow morning, we thank you that what we need will be there. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Thank you for that promise that will enable us to rest tonight. Not only sleep, but rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing to uh, trek through the Psalms, as we're calling this series. And tonight we are in Psalm 7. Psalm 7 is a psalm that requires some background. I mentioned last week and the week before that some of these psalms overlap. 
Some of these psalms deal with topics that were covered in earlier psalms. I mean, we're just at Psalm 7, but there's already some repeat. Why is that? David wrote half of the psalms, 150 psalms. He wrote close to 75. We've been, we started in Psalm 1, we're in Psalm 7. Psalm 1 and 2 are basically introductory psalms, but 3, 4, 5, 6, now 7. Uh, these are psalms written by David. As, uh, we, we have a lot of biographical information on David. We know a lot about his life. We have as much detail on David's life, really, as much as anyone I can think of in Scripture. So his story is well known to us. And you can sort of track his steps as you go through the Psalms. And what happens is when he, hit, when he would hit certain rough stretches and rough patches and deal with a particular situation, it's interesting how that correlates with us as we walk through life. And some of these things like tonight, there will be some repeat of what he has talked about before in regard to his enemies and how they are trying to bring him down. That just, if you encounter an enemy or someone who's against you, that probably just won't happen once in your life. There are different kinds of enemies. There are different kinds of people who will oppose you. It will come up probably in each chapter of your life and that's why it's mentioned time and time and time again. Might be different people, might be different uh, subject matter, but it's the same big picture. You've got someone who's against you and trying to bring you down. We'll see that again tonight. This psalm, Psalm 7, we're going to have to do a little background because the superscription is, is very interesting. Psalm 7, the superscription says, a shigeon of David, which, and you were just at lunch today, talking about shigeons. <laughs> were you not? You know, I had been pondering the shigeons in Scripture. Uh, actually, maybe you've never even heard the word. There's only one psalm out of the 150 that have the word shigeon in the introduction, in the superscription, and it's this one. Uh, it's, it's an obscure term. It's found one other time in the Old Testament, but this is a shigeon of David when, which he sang to the Lord, prayed to the Lord, concerning Cush, the Benjamite. What does this mean? Well, he's giving us some background and he's giving us some context. First of all, a shigeon. A shigeon is a passionate psalm with strong emotion. Passionate psalm with strong emotion. It, it is not, um, there are times when we pray and our prayers are quiet. There are times we pray, our prayers are silent. Um, we're contemplating, we're pondering. A, a shigeon psalm is a passionate psalm with strong emotion because, once again, he's in trouble. 
the, the concept of trouble comes up often in the Psalms. It comes up often in life, does it not? Different kinds of trouble, different kinds of adversity, but it comes up. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, through many troubles, we must enter the kingdom of God. So it, it is a recurring subject. And when you are in the straits that David is in, he is offering up a shigeon, a passionate psalm, a passionate prayer with strong emotion. He mentions Cush the Benjamite in the superscription. And the shigeon somehow is tied in. In fact, it says it's tied in. Uh, a shigeon of David which he's saying to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. And you say, yeah, what's this all about? We don't know. We flat out don't know. We don't know who Cush is. We don't know what his deal was with David. We don't know what the, obviously there was some kind of uh, uh, disagreement. Obviously there was some kind of issue. There was some kind of trouble. Enough for him, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write Psalm 7 around the circumstances involving Cush the Benjamite, but we don't, we don't know what it was. All we know is that Cush was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Benjamin knight, 12 tribes in Israel. Throughout his life, from the time David encountered Saul and the whole thing with Goliath, where he took Goliath down, David had trouble with the Benjaminites. Saul was a Benjaminite. We don't know what it was with Cush, but we sure know what it was with Saul. And later in life, David had some issues with some other Benjaminites. Hebrew brothers that were of the tribe of Benjamin who hated David. In, in 1 Samuel 22, verse 6, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 21 and following, in 1 Samuel 24, verse 8, we find out that Saul, who was the first king, Saul had a network, he had a network of spies that were primarily made up of men of the tribe of Benjamin who were spread out across the nation and they would track David and they would report in to Saul and Saul would award them with money or some kind of gift. Sometimes spies tell the truth about what's going on. Sometimes spies don't tell the truth. But if there's a reward involved and they're a little short on cash that month, why not make something up about David and report in and get a check at the end of the month? That's kind of what's going on here in Psalm 7. Um, these spies at times would lie about David and slander David and report it to the king. That's the context of what's going on here in Psalm 7.
Bruce Wilkinson and my friend Larry Libby did a book years ago called uh, Talk Through Bible Personalities, short biographies of key biblical characters. They've got Saul in here, they've got David, they've got an outline of David's life, and then the four major movements in scripture concerning David's life. The first one would have been his early years as a kid, as a shepherd. He was the youngest of eight. And the youngest had the job of taking care of the sheep. Not the greatest job in the world. Uh, it was always good to have a new son born because that meant you, everybody took a step up. But David was the youngest. And at a certain point when the Lord had had it with Saul because of Saul's continuous disobedience. Although Saul was still king, the Lord was finished with Saul in terms of what Saul could have had. He sends Samuel, the prophet, to the house of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. Jesse said, bring in all your sons. He brings them all in, and he looks at each one some, you know, strapping big guys, very impressive members of Saul's army. And he looks at each one and he says, you have any other sons? Well, well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's David, but he's, he's with the sheep. Bring him in. He brings in David. He's the next king of Israel. But his father didn't think enough of him to even bring him in. Sometimes... The biggest issue that a man has in his life is a lack of attention and a lack of affirmation and a lack of appreciation from his father. It seems as we look at the scripture that David had that. His dad didn't think real highly of him, kind of dismissed him, kind of forgot about him. But that was God's choice. He was God's choice and God was gonna use him mightily. And by the way, this was quiet, it was private. It wasn't known throughout the land yet. And David wasn't going to assume the throne for a number of years. But he was God's chosen one to replace Saul as king of Israel. After that happens, he soon becomes a fugitive. Now, let me read you the short bio here, because they do a good job of summing it up. After years of obscurity in the wilds of Judah... David finds himself suddenly thrust into the national limelight. First, the prophet Samuel visits Jesse's Bethlehem ranch and anoints David to succeed King Saul. Unaware of David's promotion, Saul summons David to become his court musician. He'd heard one of his CDs and thought it was pretty good, and let's bring this guy in. So, and the only thing that would calm Saul down, he would go into these rages because the Spirit of God had left him, the only thing that would calm him down was this soothing music that David would play. Then you've got the whole situation with Goliath. When Goliath terrifies Israel's army, David fells the Philistine champion with a single stone. Saul is infuriated by jealousy. By the way, Goliath was the biggest man in the Philistine nation. Who was the biggest man in Israel? Saul. Stood head and shoulders with every other man in Israel. Who should have taken on Goliath? Saul. But he didn't do it. Why? He didn't have a heart for God. 
He was afraid. He did not believe that God would deliver him. And instead of taking his rightful place in front of his men and leading them in the combat and taking on that giant, he's, uh, he's hanging around in the back playing cards and smoking cigars or whatever he's doing. But he's sure not where he's supposed to be. So David shows up because his brothers are in the army. His, his dad says, hey, go up and see how your brothers are doing. Take these Subway sandwiches. Go up there and, you know, make sure they're getting some chow. And he does that. And when David shows up, he sees this giant who's mocking the Lord God of Israel, and all these Israeli soldiers are standing around, you know, shaking in their boots. And David says, what, what's the deal? Why are you letting this guy do this? Well, and they all start making their excuses, and you know. David says, I'll take him. I'm not afraid. Lord, the Lord delivered me from a bear. And you stop and think about that. He's defending these sheep. These sheep belong to his dad, and this bear shows up. David takes on the bear and kills it. Now, he didn't have an AR-15. He takes that bear on. And then, another time, you've got a lion. A lion shows up, and David takes on the lion and kills it. All that did was increase his faith in the power of God. God always has his men in the wings for the next generation, and he always brings them out of obscurity to a significant stage at just the right time. They're in obscurity because that's the place of preparation. Uh, when David killed the lion, when, they, when he killed the bear, uh, it wasn't on Instagram. It, it, it wasn't on Facebook. And it, it didn't get three million likes. He just did it. It was just between him and God. But God had something else in mind for David. David didn't know anything about it, but this is how God prepares his men. He, he grew him up in obscurity, and David learned that God could be trusted. So David shows up, sees this, that, listen, if God helped me with a bear and God helped me with a lion, God will give me what I need to take this guy. And they think he's nuts. And you know the story. He drops him. He drops the sucker, cuts his head off. And now, there's a new number one song in Israel on American Bandstand. I knew, I, I knew someone would like that. The old guys like that. The young guys, what? Google it. American Bandstand. Anyway, there was a new number one song on iTunes. I have no idea what iTunes is but I wanted to say it just to be culturally relevant. <laughs> Number one song in Israel after he kills Goliath is Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. That was it. Because you see, Saul was a counterfeit leader and Saul was a counterfeit king. He looked like a leader. He'd walk in, he'd be the biggest guy in the room. He had that 
charisma, he had that presence, he had all that stuff. Gravitas. But at heart, he was a coward. Because he didn't have a trust and he didn't have a fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is clean. He didn't have that fear of the Lord. He didn't have that trust in the Lord. So as a spiritual leader, he was absolutely worthless. But David was a young guy who was just a young guy, a sinner like all the rest of us, who had a heart for God. But when he dropped Goliath, see, this is what happens. When a genuine leader shows up, a counterfeit leader gets threatened. The counterfeit leader may have the title. Years and years ago, I was at a luncheon in Dallas. We just moved here. And can't even remember what the luncheon was. It was some kind of Christian luncheon. I was there, somebody invited me, I went. A guy hands me his card. I couldn't tell you who he is, I don't have the card. All I know is he handed me this card. I looked at it later, it was the single most impressive business card I've ever seen in my life. There are more degrees on that card than, than on a thermometer. <laughs> he had BA, he had MA, he had MABS. He had D-men, he had Ph.D., he had E.D.D. dot D. He had, I mean, he just went on with the academic, I mean, it's very impressive. And then, but he didn't stop with academics. He had, he had, he was CEO, he was founder, he was chairman, he was CEO, he was, he was and, and the card said, turn over, and I went to the back. It didn't say that. But it was very small print. I mean, everything this guy had ever done was on that card. It was a very impressive card. I don't know the guy from Adam. I don't know if the guy's a leader or not. But I will tell you this, academic degrees don't make you a leader. Titles don't make you a leader. You're only a leader if you lead. You're only a leader if you do the next right thing as you follow Christ. David did the Thing that needed to be done next when the men of Israel were frozen with fear. And for that, it changed everything because now Saul hates him. Saul's not listening to the CDs. Saul's trying to kill him. Back to the short description. Saul, infuriated by jealousy over David's growing national acclaim, forces David to flee to the wilderness. For the next 10 years, David lives the life of a fugitive. That is probably the background of Psalm 7. One more piece from this chapter on David because it, it really does an excellent job. When the bottom dropped out, of David's life, trouble and heartache roared into his life like a flood. In short order, he lost his job, was driven from his wife and home, was separated from his best friend Jonathan, and forced to flee into the wilderness for his very life. The same army he previously led in triumph only a few months earlier was now pursuing him as public enemy number one. For the next 10 years of his life, David lived the life of a fugitive. 
constantly on the move, constantly in danger of capture and execution, running from one place to the next, hiding in lonely forest or lurking in um, limestone caves. For 10 years, this was his life. From about the age of 20 to the age of 30, some of the choicest years of manhood, when a man normally establishes himself in a career and begins building his home and family. But that wasn't the case for David. For David, they were the great years of disappointment and struggle. One by one, he watched his, de- his dreams crumble in the dust in his 20s. That's not unusual for a young man who's following Christ. You see? It just isn't. It's not unusual. There seems to be a pattern that God uses to develop his men. And leaders tend to be strong-willed, and they tend to have clear plans and objectives, and they are get-it-done kind of guys. That's good to a point. But young leaders have to learn, not my will, but thine be done. That's very, very hard to learn. This is why through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If you read uh, a biography of any Christian leader that was used by God, you're going to see this pattern. You're going to see the pattern that was in David's life. Let me get back to the text. Why would God require David to experience those years of trouble at all? If God was truly David's friend, why didn't he step in and put an end to all this somehow? Here are two possible reasons that involves David, and one involves us. In the first place, it may have been that David's friendship with God had reached a plateau, a leveling off point. It is almost a truism that nothing in the spiritual life remains level. There is either an advance spiritually or there is a decline spiritually. If David was going to go on in his relationship with God, he had to experience God's grace in a deeper way. The Lord is good to us, and we have seasons of prosperity, and we thank God for those seasons. But there are also times of adversity. There are times... As the Lord said to Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Lord oversees all of this. In Deuteronomy 6, as the children of Israel, who had been slaves for 400 years, were going into the promised land, and the Lord was going to drive out the ites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the termites, all the ites, he was going to drive them out. They were advanced civilizations with, with iron chariots. They were formidable. There was no way... They could, they could handle these people, except the Lord God. The Lord, here's what the Lord said to them in Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you orchards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you cisterns full of millions of gallons of water that you didn't dig over hundreds of years because water is a, pre, a premium in Israel. I'm going to drop this prosperity on you when you get there. And he did. But then the next verse in Deuteronomy 6 says, but be careful when this happens that this does not turn your heart away from me. We can only take so much prosperity before we start to decline. 
we, we can take only so much goodness from God before we start to coast. And because he's a good father, he's watching over our hearts, and he knows what he wants to do in our lives, so he oversees it, and he'll give, and then it's, hmm, hmm. He'll see a decline. Well, it's time to take away. Because when God takes away, it drives us to him. That's how it works. If David was going to go on in his relationship with God, he had to experience God's grace in a deeper way. That means in a more painful way. That's what that means. <laughs> if you ever say to the Lord, Lord, just take me deeper. You, you know, just, just know what you're asking. Just know what you're asking. And strap it on and get ready. And he'll do it. And he'll oversee you. And he'll get you through. But it's going to be a ride. No one develops muscles of faith and trust when everything is prosperous and peaceful. David's years as a fugitive brought him to the end of himself. And once he reached the limits of wisdom and endurance, David found resources beyond anything he had ever experienced. He began to tap the infinite resources of God, resources he would sorely need as the king of Israel. Why would a young guy go through hard stuff in his 20s? Because God's got something for him in mind by 40, in his 50s. In his, but, but you see, there is an educational progress, uh, process. John Newton called it the, uh, he said, God enrolled me in the school of disappointment. Others have called it the University of Jesus. It's going into the wilderness. It's, it's not a bad place. It's actually a good place, but it's a hard place. That's the background on Psalm 7. So in this psalm, basically, we're going to see what we have in Psalm 7 is that we have a model, a model for dealing with false accusations from an enemy. You say false accusations? Yeah, because as we get into the psalm, you're going to see that's at the heart of what's happening. False accusations have been made against David. And these false accusations were reported to Saul. The accusations, however, untrue, spread throughout the nation. And that's devastating. So, we're going to look at four things tonight as we discuss Psalm 7, which is a model for dealing with false accusations. Let me give them to you in advance, and so we'll come back and work our way through them. Here's, here's the first thing you do when you're dealing with false accusations from an enemy. Number one, you go straight to the Lord. That's verses 1 and 2. We'll come back to it. Go straight to the Lord. Secondly, in verses 3 and 5, you judge yourself honestly. Judge yourself honestly. Third, this is verses 6 through 13. Know that the Lord will judge righteously. Know that the Lord will judge righteously. That's 6 through 13. And then in 14 through 17, know that the Lord will judge inevitably. No one escapes the judgment of the Lord. 
no one who slanders, no one who lies, no one who comes against you and spreads false rumors, uh, who seeks to undermine you and undercut you and destroy your reputation. Judgment's inevitable. Let's dive back into this. Let's go to verses one and two. And here you're gonna see the principle when you're falsely accused, you go straight to the Lord. Verses one and two. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Don't miss, O Lord and my God. You can't miss it. It's easy to just go over it because it's everywhere in the Psalms. But the basis of sanity in our lives is that he is my Lord and he is my God. Sometimes you just got to stop and think about that in the midst of a very, very difficult situation that threatens to undo you. Who is my Lord and who is my God? He's absolutely sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's in control of my enemies. He's in control of my circumstances. He oversees my life. My times are in his hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. You got to start thinking about who your God is, about his power, about his goodness. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. See, this is why we read scripture. Because you get this truth about God, and when you get blindsided by slander, when you get uh, knocked down by something being said and being spread that absolutely is not true, that's devastating. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. And it will happen to you, for most of us, it's happened and it's happened more than once. It's probably coming again to a theater near you. There'll probably be another episode of this. It's not pleasant, but God is up to something when it happens. God is not unaware of it. God is not shocked by it. God oversees it. He has a plan for my life. He has a plan for your life. He's my Lord. He's my God. He's got me. He's got me. That's my stability. That's my sanity. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. So what's the first thing he does with these slanders that we'll see in a minute? He goes straight to the Lord. Because the Lord is his refuge and his defender. Same thing is said in Psalm 27 by David. These are, this is a familiar psalm. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David's on the run. He's hiding in caves. Saul has thousands of men. And David is a fugitive and he is being hunted. It would be very, very easy to live in fear of Saul. How do you fight off fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Well, I should fear the Lord. Because of who he is and because of his character and because of his goodness and because of his power and because of his promises to me. This isn't fairy tale stuff. This is real stuff. When you're under attack, when you're being slandered, when your reputation is being shredded, what do you got left? 
How do you fight back? How do you restore that? Only the Lord can do that. He goes on and says, the Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Isaiah says, he, meaning God, he shall be your dread. If you're going to dread anybody, dread God. In, in terms of an awesome fear of God. Not, that, not a terror that he's going to destroy you, but he's my father. He is unbelievable. He's pure. He's holy. He's righteous. He has all power. He has all wisdom. He knows all things. That's my God. That's my father. And I want to please him. And I can go to him. And I can tell him anything. And he's got my back, and he's got my front, and he's got my flanks, and he's got me above, and he's got me underneath. I'm encapsulated by my God. Whom shall I dread? There's no reason to dread man. When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumble and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Why? Not because of me, because of who my God is. Go down to verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path. Because, watch this now. This ties in right with uh, Psalm 7. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. Watch, th watch this. For false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You're not in this by yourself. Now, let's go to the second point. So you go straight to the Lord. Secondly, the second thing you do, you do when you're unjustly accused is you judge yourself honestly. This is verses 3 and 5. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, now here he gets to the accusations that are untrue. Now we're at the heart of the matter. If I have rewarded evil to my friend, if I have done something wicked to someone that trusted me and I had a long relationship with and they thought they could trust me, if I have done evil, apparently that was one of the slanderous truths that was said about David. He acknowledges it. If I rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered, or stolen him, who without cause was my adversary, if I have done anything wrong, if, if I have violated your commands in regard to someone who's even against me, which apparently that was one of the accusations that had been made against David. If I have done this, and by the way, I haven't. That's what he's saying. Sometimes we receive accusations and they're true. We've done them. We're wrong. We, we knew we were wrong in doing it. And we get called on it. That's... We've all been there. It's very uncomfortable. What's the right thing to do when that happens? You acknowledge it, you come clean before the Lord, and there's someone else you need to talk to. That's the right way to handle that. 
Sometimes we're guilty of the accusation. Here, David is not guilty of the accusation. And he's telling the Lord that. He is. Sometimes we tell the Lord things that the Lord knows. In fact, whatever you tell the Lord, he knows. <laughs> but we're just dust. We're just people. We're just sheep. We're his kids. And just talk to him. Just tell the Lord. You love hearing from your kids. He loves hearing from his. If I've rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, watch this, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Lord, if I've done this, send judgment on me. But what are you saying, Lord? I haven't done it. Oswald Chambers uh, died in 1915. After his death, his wife took a number of his talks that he delivered to soldiers in the British military. He was a chaplain. And she wrote a devotional out of his talks called My Utmost for His Highest. It's one of the best-selling devotionals in the world. Wonderful. Probably the top two devotionals you can get, My Utmost for His Highest by Chambers, uh, Morning and Evening by C.H. Spurgeon. They're both, I mean, they're, they're the heavyweight champions of the world. Uh, they're just solid stuff. So he died in 1915. In 1900, he was late 20s, ballpark, in a ministry, just starting to get some um, acclaim, was starting to do more and more speaking, and in the midst of that, in this small town where he was based in Scotland, a young woman in the ministry accused him of sexual misconduct. Now, that's a big deal today. It was huge in 1900, and it wasn't true. And it just about took him down in his own heart because he knew, he, he didn't see any way, he knew that was going to get out beyond that small town, and it wasn't true. And inevitably things would happen where he was invited to come and speak over here, but that rumor made its way, that slanderous remark made its way, and then he received a letter, and we will have to rescind our invitation. It, it, was, it was a devastating loss to him. These accusations were devastating to, uh, to David because they were slanderous. Back when we did our study on the Ten Commandments, under the Ninth Commandment, I read some of this from Thomas Watson. I want to read it again tonight. The Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Watson says, the commandment binds the tongue to its good behavior. God has set two natural fences to keep in the tongue, the teeth and the lips. And this commandment is a third fence set about it that it should not break forth into evil. 
The scorpion carries his poison in his tail. The slanderer carries his poison in his tongue. This guy doesn't pull punches. Augustine said, the tongue inflicts greater wounds than the sword. And if you've ever been falsely accused, you know that's true. He that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. Thou shalt not bear false witness. In 1 Timothy 3.11, that we often translate as slanderer, the same word signifies both a slanderer and a devil. Not slanderers in the Greek, not devils. Some think it is no great matter to represent and slander others, but it is to act the part of the devil. You may kill a man in his name as well as in his person. It's his reputation. He goes on and says, this is a sin for which no reparation can be made, a blot in a man's name being like a blot on a white paper, which will never be got out. Surely God will visit for this sin. He goes on and says, a person who commits perjury under oath falsely accuses, lies about someone else in the courtroom. He says, a perjurer is the devil's excrement. He never read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But he was a powerful preacher. And what he says is true. If you've ever been slandered, you would agree. We have to learn to judge ourselves honestly. Are accusations, true accusations, hard to deal with? Yes. But sometimes they're true, and we're guilty, and we need to confess to the Lord and to any that have been hurt. Sometimes the accusations are false. But we have got to check our hearts before we move on to the third. The third point is this in verses 6 through 13. Know that the Lord will judge righteously. He will judge righteously. When we get slandered, when things are said about us, our reputation is marred, it, it is uh, called into question, uh, it's spreading around in our circles, in our sphere of influence, it, it's devastating. We wonder how we'll ever recover. What we read in verses 6 through 13 we're being told, don't take your own revenge. Don't take your own revenge. He calls on the Lord to work. And, and note these, these statements, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Because God is angry about sin. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you and over them return on high. Uh, come to the Supreme Court and judge this. Deal with this and deal with it now. When we are slandered, when something like this happens, we want it dealt with now. We don't want it to continue. We want it nipped in the bud. 
So he is pleading with the Lord. You see, arise, O Lord. Lift up yourself. Arouse yourself for me. Judge them. Look at verse 8. The Lord judges the people. Vindicate me, O God, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. He's asking for God to act, and he wants God to act now. That's just how we are. Right? Sure. Because this is a very painful place to be in. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who is angry with the wicked every day. I said last week, in regard to Psalm 6, that Warren Wearsby made the statement that he'd been a longtime pastor and he'd looked back over the years and he remembered some people in his various pastorates who were Christians, actually professing Christians, because the longer he got to know them and watch their lives, it was very apparent they really didn't know the Lord. There was no fruit in their life. They lived double lives. They were one way on Sunday and another way in business, Monday through Saturday. They were in deep sin. They covered it. And Wearsby said, and it, I, I was aware of it, but others weren't. And I wondered how they could go so long without God being, without God judging. And it was hard on them. We wondered the same thing. Because we want God to judge instantaneously. Except when it comes to us. Right? <laughs> I've never prayed that about me. I pray that about other people. Oh, Lord, judge the wicked. I mean, just pound them. Destroy them. Stunt the growth of their children. I mean, just all kinds of things come to my mind. Cut them from the basketball team. Lord, I mean, I can, I'm incredibly creative to call down judgment on others. I never do that with me. The Lord is patient. The Lord is not willing any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth and, and repentance. Um, but we want it, and we want it now. The fact of the matter is, the Lord will judge, and he will judge righteously. He may not judge on the timetable that we desire, but he will judge. Part of this when we go through it, is that we're building spiritual muscle. And we're learning lessons we don't want to learn. We're in something like this, when you want God to act and he doesn't, you're being forced to wait on God, which is another word for patience, for God's timing. That's a hard lesson. To be willing to wait for God's perfect timing. Yet it's your reputation that's out there. Many years ago, several decades ago, I was pastoring, but I was also, I would work with a, a ministry several times a year around the country and do some speaking. There was a particular instance when they called me and they had a very unique situation occur, and they asked me if I could do double 
what I would normally do in a weekend. And I said, yes, I'd have to do double the prep, and it was coming real fast. I was glad to do it. I was honored to do it. And it uh, apparently went well. And several weeks later, I had a meeting with the guy who was head of the ministry, and I figured one of the things would come up would just be talking about how that all worked out. And, and within about two minutes, I knew it wasn't going to be what I thought it was going to be. Uh, I wasn't going to get a, a gold watch on this deal. They had three charges against me. You did this, and you, with this person you did this, and with this person you did this, all in that weekend. Just stuff about um, nothing immoral. First of all, it was, it was pretty small stuff. I don't want to say petty, so I won't. I had obviously given offense to some people I didn't mean to give offense to, on the team, and as each one of those was leveled to me, I could see where they completely misunderstood what was intended. I didn't speak up and I didn't give a reply because it was very clear that the jury had already returned their verdict. And I remember walking out of that meeting and thinking to myself, Shigeon. <laughs> Actually, I didn't think that. I thought, how did that happen? They completely misread what I intended. Completely and totally. It wasn't one, it was three. Now, usually when I get three things in a row, I really pay attention to it. And I paid attention to that, but I honestly could say, Lord, you know. I, that, what, what they think is not what was in my heart or intended or I don't think even done. But I wasn't in a position where I could, so I just had to let it go. And, and that got out. And it began to spread. It's easy to teach this stuff. It's hard to apply it. I wanted to be vindicated right then. But the Lord had another lesson that he wanted me to learn. And that was to wait on him. To wait on him. He'll judge, and he'll judge righteously. And, and these were not unbelieving people. These were good people. But sometimes this happens, even with believers. But know that the Lord... See, here's what happens. When we get this idea, and we do see people get off scot-free, and it seems that the Lord, they're not being judged righteously. But you see, God has different ways of judging Sometimes it's a slow process. Sometimes it is an immediate judgment, but God knows best. 
Let's go to the fourth point, then I want to read a quote to you from Warren Wiersbe. The fourth point that we have is know that the Lord will judge inevitably. Inevitably. In other words, judgment cannot be escaped. This is verses 14 through 15. I want to read this, actually beginning with 12, very carefully. If a man does not repent of, and the context here is of slander towards someone who is innocent, and it would apply to any other sin, but that was the context. If a man does not repent, he, meaning God, will sharpen his sword. God, he, has bent his bow and made it ready. So he's got the arrow, he's put it in, and he's got it ready. God has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. He'll stick it in the pitch, got the flame going. But notice, he's got them ready, but he hasn't fired the weapon yet. He's just got it ready. From our perspective, we're saying, Lord, shoot them. Let that arrow go. Do it now. He's ready. He's prepared. Now look at this metaphor in 15. Behold, he, tra he travails with wickedness, that's 14, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. Now he's talking about the slanderer, the one who lied. Uh, this is the pregnancy of sin. That's what he's talking about. The same thing in James 1. Watch this. Those who falsely accuse, he conceives mischief. Somebody, uh, Cush, conceived mischief. He wanted to miss up David's life. The thought came to him, I'm going to say this about David. I'll get a good check at the end of the month. So he conceives mischief and he brings forth what? Falsehood. That's where slander comes from. Now watch this. He, the slanderer, has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. He's obviously bald. Okay? This is a fascinating concept here. And, and I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this. Um, just a couple paragraphs. This image of sin as pregnancy is frequently found in Scripture. It's in Job 15, Isaiah 33, James 1. Sinners conceive sin that, like a monstrous child, eventually grows up and destroys them. They dig pits and fall into them themselves. The trouble they cause comes back on their own heads. That's Galatians 6, 7. There is a work of divine retribution in this world, and nobody can escape it. Frederick von Logau said this, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Saul wanted to kill David, but Saul's own sword killed him. 
Pharaoh ordered the male Jewish babies to be drowned in the Nile, but his own army was drowned in the Red Sea. Haman built a gallows on which to hang Mordecai, and Haman himself was hanged on his own gallows. He who digs a pit for another will fall into it himself. God may take time to judge, but God will judge. It is inevitable. It's what one scholar, Peter Craigie, calls the boomerang effect. So when you've been falsely accused, when you've been slandered, or this or that, it's been a family member, or uh, someone you used to have a partnership with, or a, a trusted friend who you walk together in the Lord, and there's this stuff that starts flying back and forth, and it's just putting your reputation and your name through a shredder, know this, those who slander with the intent of causing harm, those who conceive mischief about you, all they are doing, as Craigie says, is throwing a boomerang. You ever throwing a boomerang? You throw a boomerang, you better keep your eyes open. You can throw a baseball and you're fine. You can throw a football and you're fine. You throw a boomerang, you better keep your eyes peeled because that boomerang is going out there and then here it comes. There is a boomerang effect that God oversees. He will justify you. He will vindicate you. You don't need to seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's why, now that he's worked this through in verse 17, and notice he starts out with anxiety and worry and wants instant results from God. Notice 17, I'll give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Why? Now he's got balance. Now he's got it in perspective because he has thought biblically. He knows who his Lord is, and it's stabilized him. It's in God's hands. He'll vindicate the righteous. Let's pray. Father, teach us from this passage. Apply it to the situation of every man, whether in the past or in the present. Help us to respond accordingly to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.